coming up on this episode of Here's an Idea. His prosthetic hand is shaking, and he comments on this and says, Mr. President, your hands are very warm. And Barack Obama responds and says, well, listen, I'm a lot more nervous about meeting you than you are about meeting me. So what inspired you and your co-founder, Florian Solzbacher, to start the company? Like this, he responded and said he wanted to create the link between artificial and bionic limb. And that kind of vision at such an early age, I've always been quite impressed by. Hello and welcome to another episode of Here's an Idea. On our Here's an Idea podcast series, we often talk about the road of an invention, from thought to action. Today on the show, we have the CEO of a company that focuses on a similar connection, thought to action. For some people, that critical link between brain and body has been damaged or severed entirely, by disease or by an accident. A company based in Salt Lake City, Utah, a company called BlackRock Neurotech, is creating brain-computer interfaces that allow quadriplegic and tetraplegic patients to control computers, type at 90 characters a minute, and move robotic arms. Today on the podcast, we have co-founder and CEO of BlackRock Neurotech, Marcus Gerhardt. Marcus, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I guess in as simple a description as possible, what is a brain-computer interface? A brain-computer interface is many things. For us, it's an electrode in the brain that acts a bit like a radio, picking up signal directly from neurons. So we are in the business of taking direct data from neurons, picking them up through an electrode, in our case, the Utah array, small 4 by 4 millimeter microelectrode, then taking that signal um, out of the brain and moving it to some kind of effector, a prosthetic hand or a module that allows you to communicate or a maybe control a wheelchair or a cursor, uh, those kind of things. But for us, that's what a BCI is in simplest terms. What is kind of the main component of this system and how is it placed onto a patient? In our case, it's that little electrode that's four by four millimeters has uh, about 96 little needles protruding from it, which touch the brain and is applied to various parts of the brain, the ones that you want to influence. So it's the visual cortex if you wanted to stimulate somebody to see again. Now in that case, because the visual cortex is quite a cauliflower-like, very convoluted area, you'd have to use a different kind of electrode. But in non-human primates, we have, or researchers have used our, our technology. In the case of humans, you'd put it in the motor cortex, maybe speech, you know, a variety of areas in the brain. But it sits on the brain and then records signals, your neurons. In fact, if you ever want to, you can hear the sound a neuron makes even. And then we take that data and we run it through algorithms and also run it back again. So we have a tetraplegic patient out at Pittsburgh who uh, was able to move a prosthetic arm with his thoughts alone. So the, the, the electrode is picking up the signals from the neurons, sending it out to the prosthetic hand. So the prosthetic hand now moves and Nathan was able to do things with that hand, collect some balls on a table, grab a glass, or fist bump and shake Barack Obama's hands. There's a great video out there where he does this. What was that like when he shook the president's hand? When he shakes his hands, there's these sensors in the prosthetic arm that is sending signal back into Nathan's brain, telling him what the temperature is of the hand. His prosthetic hand is shaking. And he comments on this and says, Mr. President, your hands are very warm. And Barack Obama responds and says, well, listen, I'm a lot more nervous about meeting you 
than you are about meeting me. So it's what we call a closed circuit. Not only are we gathering data, trying to use that, but we are also sending signals back into the brain, stimulating through that electrode to restore a sense of feeling. If you ask tetraplegic patients, often comes at the very top of the list, even before being able to walk again, they would love to feel again, feel what it's like to be hugged by one of their loved ones. So just very profound impact that this technology is having on human patients. I imagine that there has to be some kind of very memorable reactions to someone who's regained these kinds of senses. Can you recall any memorable reactions? Oh, you'd have to expand this podcast to several days. (laughs) It's the most rewarding part of my work, seeing on these individuals what some of these discoveries do. There's Jan Scheuermann suffering from a neurological disorder that degenerates her body within months to the point where she is paralyzed from the neck down. And she controls the arm to feed herself chocolate, her dream ever since losing function. And the great video also, I think there's a 60-minute video uh, session out there, and and she uses the prosthetic arm and she brings a bar of chocolate to her lips and just her face at that moment, you know, is priceless. And then she says, now it's a small bite for me and a big bite for mankind. (laughs) Um, But just that sense uh, when these individuals can do, Ian Burkhart grabs a glass of water and is able to take a drink himself. And he comments on how this is increasing his independence. Whenever I need a pickup, I'm very tempted to call Ian, Nathan, any of these guys. And it is enormously uplifting to see what they can do and how they make use of this technology to improve the quality of their lives, to increase independence for themselves. It's just really uh, profound. What is the most common action performed with this technology? Controlling a a mouse, controlling a cursor, controlling some other element of software. So that is the most common. And then being able to direct a prosthetic hand or a cursor or uh, play a game and be able to direct that effector with their thoughts alone. But there's also uh, studies into communication devices where individuals use this device to communicate faster. We've signed a technology deal, license deal just recently with Stanford. And what they've been able to show is a fantastic speed and accuracy rate of a communication tool. So imagine uh, either tetraplegic patients or ALS patients who aren't able to communicate anymore, being able to use this and with their thoughts, transform that into words is really quite phenomenal. Some of the technologies that exist today like eye tracking movements are very slow. I mean, if you just imagine it, right? If you have to move your eye around on a keyboard to get to the letter A, I mean, that's not how you uh, envisage an A. If I say, what's an A? You don't think left-hand side of the keyboard. So how does the technology know that you're thinking in A? Is there some kind of unique brain signature? Yeah, and and trying to keep it very simple, uh, and obviously the complexity behind it is far more substantial, but certain parts of the brain, certain neurons, are signaling the sensation of warm or cold. And so if you stimulate the right part of the brain, you will feel warm, you will feel cold. Parts of our extremities are directly linked to certain regions of the brain, your thumb, your index finger, your hand, your arm. And so it's a case of recording from those areas and then stimulating those areas in order to restore function. Are there any kind of advanced actions that 
this technology may do someday but doesn't do right now? The communication tools and the, the technology that we licensed from Stanford are now at a sort of a 94% accuracy. We want to be at 98, 99, 100% accuracy. The speed is today already 10 times faster than anything else that's out there, three to five times faster than any comparative tool, but it's at 90 characters per minute. Uh, an able-bodied person is closer to 250 characters per minute. So that's where we want to get this technology. We want this technology to be at the level of able-bodied people. We want to increase the independence, the quality of life of these uh, tetraplegic patients. And that, from our perspective, means that they should be close to, if not at, the level of able-bodied uh, individuals. So what inspired you and your co-founder, Florian Solzbacher, to start the company? The inspiration of that goes back even more than the creation of BlackRock three or four decades ago when I meet my co-founder at high school. And I asked him what he wanted to do in life. And like this, he responded and said he wanted to create the link between artificial and bionic limb. And that kind of vision at such an early age, I've always been quite impressed by. We stayed in touch. I created a company straight out of university. He built his career to achieve that very goal. And when he approached me to start a company in neuroscience, despite the fact that I knew very little about neuroscience, despite the fact that it was one of the worst performing sectors in VC history back in 2008, and we were just hitting a financial crisis, despite all of those things, for me, it was a no-brainer, and I was going to commit to Florian. Can you give me a sense of how many people are using this technology today? Yeah, so today it's in the, in the research context, and there's about 35 patients worldwide that have had an invasive BCI. 90% of those use BlackRock technology. We're intending to have a commercially available product out there next year to increase that patient number to hundreds and then thousands. What other options are there in this field? Are there alternatives to a brain-computer interface? Are there other technologies that work alongside your technology? Yeah, there should always be ideally alternatives, and, and there are many alternative approaches here too. There are attempts to get to the data from outside, uh, non-invasive approaches. And I think for some applications, those might work. There's been some interesting companies like uh, Halo, that have tried to use data from outside the brain to increase sports performance, and some of those things work quite well. The tough proposition for them is to have any kind of restoring of function effect, which is today impossible with a non-invasive approach. You really have to get to the data in the brain to get direct data from the brain to have that kind of impact. So they'll be limited, and we think for at least a decade, if not two, but there will be applications in sport performance, maybe mental health and others that they might be able to, to have an impact on. So with this technology, can you restore any senses at all? What, what's possible? Well, we intend, and that's our, our, our mission and vision, uh, to make people walk, talk, hear, and see again, to restore function. And I appreciate those are goals of biblical proportions, but behind them sit very concrete, stepped approaches to restoring those various functions. And we think that the brain is the answer to that. We have the technology to pick up that data. We have the technology to then affect that data and bring it back into the brain so that people can have increased control over things if they're tetraplegic, maybe one day make them walk again. But it's figurative for, you know, the restoration of function of being able to control things around them, to increase their independence, to affect softwares around them, maybe work one day as accountant or an architect by controlling software directly with their mind. 
It is to make people hear again. So our technology is already today being used in devices, in animal studies to restore hearing and be sort of next generation cochlear implants, connecting directly with the auditory nerve, ultimately allowing people to, to hear. Maybe deaf people who are, who are deaf from birth be able to hear music, which is impossible today, or hear uh, you know, in a busy room distinct voices, again, impossible with today's technology, and all the way to people talking again when they can't communicate or seeing again. Now, some of these things are a bit further out there. There's in research mode. Some of them are about to be commercialized in first product embodiments. See again is a, is a tougher proposition, but we're working with leading research centers in the world today, and they have done some fantastic things and achieved in animal studies the ability for non-human primates to see symbols and letters again. It seems just about limitless what we might be able to do, but we've got to get through the first steps. Well, Marcus Gerhardt, thanks for being with us on Here's an Idea. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more and see videos or photos of the brain-computer interface that you've heard about today, go to our episode page at techbriefs.com podcast, where you can also listen to previous episodes of Here's an Idea. If you like this episode, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. If you have a question for Marcus or any comments about the episode, please email us at podcasts with an S at saemediagroup.com. Thanks for listening.